0: of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away I will bless the Lord at all times His praise shall continually be in my mouth My soul makes its boast in the Lord let the humble hear and be glad O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones; not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. As far as we read in God's holy word, "What if I asked you, as sort of a classroom, and you're my students, to have a, a little assignment right now, in class project. Write a song of thanks, your own personal song of thanks. Take a sheet of paper, take a pen right now, and I, I would go quiet and I'd give you four minutes to complete this process of a song of thanks. You write your own song of thanks. That's what we're studying. Psalm 34 is a song of thanks. Are you in a good frame of mind to write one today? This year? All of a sudden, Thanksgiving's upon us? Uh, Around here, we've had weather in the 70s and suddenly dropped. It feels like we lost a month or something. How could it already be Thanksgiving? Here we are. It's Thanksgiving. Can you give thanks? Could you author a song of thanks? Maybe your heart is broken. Maybe your hopes have been dashed. Maybe this month, this fall, this year hasn't gone as you would like. You and I find it easier to thank God in good times when things seem to be going our way. But we find it difficult to thank God when our dreams are crushed. And we need help. We need God's help to return thanks to him when life is hard. And that is the gift of Psalm 34. There's other places, but Psalm 34 is a gift to us to find ways to thank God despite difficulty. Or as I wrote on the outline, that God gave us four steps Cope with a crisis through Psalm 34. First, let me focus on the title. As I mentioned, the title to the Psalm tells us a lot. It places the Psalm where David was when he wrote it and the context of his life around it, and it deepens our appreciation for the Psalm tremendously. So, let me spend a minute bringing you into the story of where David was. We know from the title that it was written soon after David had to say goodbye to his best friend a man named Jonathan, if you remember the story. And we know that Jonathan's father was trying to kill David, just you know, mentioning that whole factor that takes us through much of 1 Samuel. So we understand that David here was facing loneliness, no friend, no weapons, not even any food. If you go back and read 1 Samuel 21, where this instance happened, so he went to see his pastor just before this instance. Uh, his, um, you know, the chief priest, we could call it pastor, I suppose, to try to relate to it, asking for food. You know, does he can fund have any food for me? I don't have any food right now. The pastor gave him a loaf of bread. A special sort of bread is another whole message. But he also gave him a sword, a special sort of sword, Goliath's old sword. And with that sword... David must have been so desperate because he decided to go to the hometown of the giant Goliath, a place named Gath. Next. So with that sword, he goes into that city. And do you think he might be recognized carrying that sword? And here's David then in danger for his life and forced all of a sudden to come up with a creative way to save himself. And so he decided in that moment the best way as he stood before the king of Gath To save himself was to fake being insane in order to escape. So he did that. He let saliva run down his beard, scripture tells us. He made um, meaningless scratches on the door of the palace. The king said, do I need any more crazy people? Send them away from me. And that's how he got away. And David needed to go into hiding then to a dismal cave before they would figure out, wait, this is David. Maybe we should kill him anyway. And where he is in that cave is where he wrote this psalm. Does that help you to appreciate the psalm? He had nothing. Not even a friend. Not even food. He had nothing. He's on the run. He's in danger. And so in that context, understanding that, if you're having a rough year, this psalm is for you. It's for all of us. Maybe there's somebody near you that needs some coaching from you. We can turn here for great helps. We break it down in four steps. Number one, decide to praise God through the crisis. Verses one and two, God encourages us through the example of David to take the first step by making a commitment to keep praising God no matter what. Starts with the very first words of the psalm. Now we're past the title into the the words of the actual song. I will bless the Lord at all times even in the cave of adulam. David's writing this from that moment. How does he do that? We need to glean some things from David's wisdom and godliness here. He continues by writing his praise shall continually be in my mouth and verse 2 my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Wait a minute, you're the mighty David. Not only did you kill Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, but then you came up with this fake insanity thing in chapter 21. You saved the country, you saved yourself, you're something else, David. But he doesn't give himself credit for his skill with a sling, for his cleverness and creativity. David says in verse two, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. It was the Lord who gave me strength, it was the Lord who taught me with a sling years ago when I was a boy, it's the Lord who gave me in that moment The creativity of faking insanity, it's the Lord. My boast is in the Lord. God takes care of me. Verse 3, God encourages us us still further to follow David's example and encourages us to go public with our decision, to go public with our, our commitment to praise God. In fact, to call others to praise God with us as David does here instead of what we ordinarily do. What we ordinarily do is call on others to admit How it stinks to be me. Come on, don't you admit it stinks to be me? If I just would tell you, let me tell you, in fact, all of the problems that I'm facing, and you join with me in just how difficult it is to be me. Instead, David is saying, join with me in how amazing God is. What he says in verse three, he sings, Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I have reason to praise God. Join me. He's in a dark cave. We've just rehearsed what the scene is of his life, and he's calling on people to praise God. It reminds me of a a friend of our family, a Christian friend. Her name is Diane. She experienced with her family a devastating fire on her farm. And when I say devastating, they were losing everything. And when I heard about it and we called her to talk about it, all she could say was basically, praise God with me. I actually jotted down notes. I was so appalled, amazed at what she was saying on the phone. She said this The Lord was so good. He sent people at every turn. Each time we would identify something we needed, someone was already bringing it to us. This is all she could say to us. All she could say is instead of inviting us to see her bad situation and all that she lost on her farm through the fire, she's inviting us to see how good her God is. God does this for Christians. God does this for ancient kings. Deciding to praise God throughout the crisis is step one. Step two, learning about God early in the crisis. In verse four, we see from David how we learn from God about God early in the crisis. Verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me. What we learn is that God answers prayer. But what we also learn is that God doesn't necessarily answer prayer in the way that we asked it. We asked for relief. Oh, Lord, thank you for the grace and mercy and help and friends, but I asked for the whole problem to disappear. It didn't answer that way. The Lord answered me, but look carefully at verse 4. It doesn't say, he delivered me from all my problems. Now, it does say that in other parts of our psalm grant you, but it's a timing issue. Eventually, he does, right? But right now, right when I want it, right when I need it, when I ask for it, It doesn't say he delivered me from all my problems in verse 4. Look carefully. It says, God answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Didn't change the circumstances at all. Just taught me to stop fearing. Taught me to start trusting. Taught me to be thankful instead of scared. And sometimes that's the Lord's answer for us. That's what we're learning early in the crisis Don't bank on your outcome. Early in the crisis, commit yourself to saying what God's answer is, is the answer that's best for me. We have to learn this, to keep on praising a God who can remove our problems and sometimes decides not to remove our problems. Can you worship a God like that? Can you thank a God today who's like that? In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul proved that it happens in the New Testament as well as the Old when he prayed, Lord, take away my thorn. And the Lord's answer was, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Verses 5 through 7 of our Psalm, Psalm 34, God encourages us to learn something else from God, about God, the things that David is now expounding, the difference the Lord makes as we enter a crisis the difference the Lord makes as we enter a crisis. It's in verse 5. Those who look to him, entering a crisis, looking to God, having trust in him, what are they like? Those who look to him are radiant. What? (laughs) Excuse me? Radiant. Here the same word is used in Exodus 34 when Moses' face was coming down from the mountain after meeting with God. His face was radiant. And this is the same radiant face of Moses referred to by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul takes the radiant face of Moses and compares it to the Christians who are being more like the Lord. It's a transformation of the mindset, the heart on the inside, the picture of the glowing face of Moses, the picture of those who look to God being radiant is the picture of those who look to the Lord and trust in him no matter what happens next. Remaining radiant, that's the difference the Lord makes. That's what we're learning early on. This God will carry me through this set of problems. I know that. I've relearned that. I've committed to that. 149 years ago this month, it was November 1873, a Chicago businessman sent his wife and three daughters to Europe by ship. The plan was for him to come later and join his family, but his family's ship went down somewhere in the Atlantic. His wife survived the shipwreck and she wired, there was no cell phone text messaging at the time, she wired a message to her husband saying this, all our daughters have been lost. Only I have been saved. Stop. End of message. The man got on the very next vessel to join his wife in grief in Europe. His name was Mr. Horatio Spafford, a believer who had learned about God's goodness in good times and was suddenly learning more about God in his pain. As his boat neared the place where his daughters had been drowned, the skipper of the ship pointed out to Mr. Spafford the exact place. Where the previous ship went down. And it was right there, it was right then, on the deck of that ship, looking at the place where God took his daughters, that Mr. Spafford wrote down these words When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well. It is well with my soul. And since that time, 149 years ago this month, our dear brother, Mr. Spafford, through his writing and through his faith, has been calling on us to praise God with him in that classic hymn, It is well with my soul. It's the difference the Lord makes in a crisis. Let us exalt his name together, says David. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, we read. Those who look to him are radiant, not just on the good days, but on the bad days. That's a tall order. I'm going to need more help. We have two more steps. Step three, teach others in the middle of the crisis. Verse eight, we get to our title, the title of our whole theme of the thank offering, the title of this sermon, tastes. And see that the Lord is good. Now this tasting is more than just a sampling. Oh, I I might sample some of this pie. I might sample some of that cranberry. Just a little bit and see what's happening with it. No, it's far more. It's deeper. This tasting is more than a sampling. This tasting is really taking that in as part of your repertoire, your menu that you always go to. This is eating for a lifetime on this. Taste and see, get into this menu. Both Hebrews 6, 5 and 1 Peter 2, 3 use this verse, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see the Lord is good, to to pick up this theme of describing tasting as a lifestyle of faith. Tasting. Get into this. Figure this out. Taste and you will never go back. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good, I tell you. Verses 9 through 11, God expects us to not only have that lesson down, but offer how-to classes on fearing this Lord during trials. Verses 9 through 11 put us in the mind of those who can teach us. When a chancellor at the University of Glasgow at the start of a chapel service introduced a missionary named uh, Mr. David Livingston. He then stepped aside and motioned for Mr. Livingston to come forward to the podium to speak to the chapel students. And as Mr. Livingston uh, stood up and walked to the platform to speak, the students could see his hair had changed color because it had been so beaten with tropical sun. The students also noticed in this dedicated missionary's body, just in the few steps to the podium, he was still emaciated with jungle fever. The students also could clearly and plainly see from all their seats that his right arm hung limp because it had been destroyed by an African lion. And as the students took notice of these things, uh, in the short time as he was walking from his seat to the podium, all the students spontaneously stood up and gave a silent ovation in awe of this missionary's lesson being given loud and clear before he spoke a word how he lived his life, had taught the students how to fear the Lord in their own trials. It's as if David Livingston's scars, each received in the middle of a separate crisis, were illustrating to the students the words of King David here in Psalm 34, as we could read from verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Or again from verse 11, Listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. We're supposed to be those who teach others about this. It's our third step. And then the fourth step, hide from the crisis in the Lord, follow his way and wait it out. Instead of hiding from the Lord in a cave, hiding from the Lord in a crisis, we hide from the crisis in the Lord and we follow his way and wait it out. When we're hurting, what's the first thing we do? If you're anything like me, the first thing you do is start complaining and grumbling if you're anything like the Old Testament Israelites, if you're anything like those who Paul was writing to in Philippians, if you're anything like me, or all the rest of the human race, you know we struggle with this, complaining and grumbling. It's the direct opposite of praise. It's the direct opposite of thanks. What is your default language? Do you always wake up in the morning ready to praise God and thank Him? Or do you always wake up in the morning ready to comb through your day that hasn't happened yet and find things that are bad to complain about? So we get a timely word. Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil. Knock it off. No more complaining. This is a word from God. It's a helpful word. It's a command, no doubt, but the equipment is given to us. Complaining is not just bad manners. It's not just bad form. It's evil. Listen to this. Keep your tongue from evil. Verse 13 goes further. Next, God instructs us to keep our lips from speaking deceit. What does that mean, deceit? It's the lies we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves, we tell those around us, if they'll listen, the lies such as, you know, it's always going to be like this. That's a lie. Well, it stinks to be me. Well, that's a lie if you're a child of God. Well, uh, there's nothing good about this day. Well, that's a lie. Today is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. And so what God instructs us in quite a general way is, keep your lips from speaking evil, or speaking deceit, I'm sorry. Keep your tongue from evil, keep your lips from speaking deceit. We deceive ourselves and soon we'll deceive those around us. Instead of inviting them to worship God with us, instead of inviting them to praise God and thank God with us, they'll be inviting them to believe lies with us about ourselves, about themselves, about the world, about God. And What do we do instead? Verse 14. Turn away from evil and do good. We must seek peace and pursue it. Not only let our tongues say helpful words, thankful words, but also, such as from 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, not just our mouths. Maybe you figured this out, that our heart and our mouth are actually attached, right? So if my mouth is open complaining, my heart is a complaining heart. And if my mouth is open thanking and praising God, then I have a thankful and praising heart. They're attached, doing the same thing. Your words tell us what your heart is doing. Not just our words. Keep your tongue from evil, sure, yes. Keep your lips from speaking deceit, oh yes. But they're tied to the heart, which is where David goes next. Our hearts need to hide in the Lord. Well, how do you do that? When things are hard, what David shows us, what God shows us through David in verse 15 and verse 17 is we cry out to God. What about when our hearts have broken within us? That's where the complainings come from. I have a broken heart. God simply reminds us ever so clearly in the beautiful verse 18 of his nearness during the troubles that break our hearts. Listen to verse 18. The Lord is near to the broken hearted. And saves the crushed in spirit. What the Bible does is it tells you God knows your sufferings can be extreme. He doesn't minimize. God's not saying, oh, look at it differently. What he's saying is, I get it. I understand. I see it. In fact, this passage even tells us God sees, God hears. He doesn't take suffering lightly. But what's also true about God is he never loses control of the situation. It's all designed not to draw God close, but to reveal how close he's always been. The Lord is near. It's not that he comes near. It's not that he will draw near. He is near to the broken harness. It is God's nearness. It is God's closeness that is the key. He's close to us. If this is a stinky November, if this is a hard year, if this is a rough season in life, and you're not sure you want to do Thanksgiving this year, the nearness of God is your key. It'll turn it all around. While we wait for deliverance, we have a God nearby waiting with us. It's not just, hey, one day we'll all get to heaven, just hang on until we get there. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, we have that place, but we also have God right here, right with us, near us, even in us by his Holy Spirit, as the New Testament tells. Verse 20, the protection of his bones is a prophecy. Have you heard that somewhere? (laughs) It's a prophecy that points us to the crucifixion of Christ. Not one of his bones was broken. Let me take you to a few verses. John 19, 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with Jesus but when they came to jesus and saw that he was already dead they did not break his legs and john writes in john 19:36 these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled not one of his bones would be broken and as you know 3 days later jesus rose again it was through this crucifixion without a single bone being broken it was through this resurrection same body same bones still not broken That God protected us, death and resurrection. That God grants us a resurrection and that resurrected Lord by his spirit to be close to us. The nearness of God leads ultimately to our rescue, but it leads immediately to our help in our heartache, our misery, our sin, and even death. Death is sometimes called for Christians the Lord Jesus explained to his disciples when he was talking about these things in Luke 21, 16. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. That was Luke 21, 16. You ready for a paradox? Two verses later, verse 18, Luke 21, 18, Jesus then says this about people who would um, maybe be put to death by family members for Jesus. Then he says this, listen carefully, verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. What? You might be put to death by family members for your commitment to Jesus, but not a hair of your head will perish. What? Two verses later, what a paradox. These verses point beyond death, you see. How could we have a Savior who has no bone broken, but they crucified him? How could we have believers who were killed by family members, but not a hair of their head disturbed? It's pointing beyond death. Because Jesus went on to say in Luke 21, verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Crucified, but no bones broken, put to death, but not a hair lost, is pointing us to to resurrection. We will outlive this. Whatever they do to you, God can reverse it. That's the power. That's the gospel we trust in. And it's true not just in the future one day when we get there, it's true now. That's the God who protects us now. He's right with us now verses 21 and 22 of our psalm, the end of the psalm, the Lord presented the end of all things with two outcomes. Notice God's judgment and God's rescue. Verse 21, the justice of God's coming judgment is laid out. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. That's one outcome. And then the second outcome in verse 22 is the mercy of God and his coming salvation. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. God wants us to see these two truths side by side. That's why they're in verse 21 and verse 22. Side by side. We keep those two truths side by side the justice of God and the mercy of God. That He is fully just, He knows what He's doing, and it always will turn out right. And He also rescues and saves sinners like us because we are His servants. Judgment and mercy, Heaven and hell. A broken heart that's a thankful heart too. Side by side, broken heart, and God understands. Yet a thankful heart that God redeems, God gives blessings. The cost of David in that, in that cave when he's writing this down, he, the cost is not imagined by him. How could he have imagined in the cave of Adullam what these words mean in verse 22? The Lord redeems the life of his servants. The cost of that? Unimagined by David. Because how will God redeem the life of his servants, what we learn in verse 22? How does that take place? What's the price tag for the redemption of the life of his servants? How the Lord would redeem? The New Testament tells us it was by the death and resurrection of the son of David, even Jesus Christ on that cross. David could not have imagined all of that. But he wrote of it, following God, trusting in him, being thankful in a mess, He was writing prophetically of his future son, the son of David, to come. And the scope of verse 22 continues. It's unbounded here. Listen to the last words of the psalm again. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Why not? Aren't you worthy of condemnation? Have you not been ungrateful? Have you not been filled with complaint? Why will you not be condemned? What does God do with the need for someone to be condemned for the things that you've done? Where does that go? He's just, I remind you. But he's merciful to you. In his justice, he takes your complaint, he takes the condemnation that you deserve, and he puts that upon the Lord Jesus Christ and puts him to death for it. Why, when we take refuge in him, will we not be condemned? Because Christ has been condemned in our place and rose again. A beautiful psalm. A little earthy, a little honest, a little real. We've studied through it. Just two reminders and applications as we close. Number one, taste and see the Lord is good. I know it's the title. (laughs) I know it's the theme of the whole thank offering. It's a take home. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now challenge yourself. Yeah, 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 I know that. I got that. I know you believe that God is good up here. If I stood up and had you read some statement that God is good, you would echo that, yes, amen to that, God is good. But have you tasted it? Is that really where you're living? Taste it. What's a fundamental difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It's not that Christians know that God exists. No, everyone knows that God exists. Romans 1 tells us that, but you know that. They know that. They're lying to themselves and lying to you. They know God exists. So what's the difference then? The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian has tasted that the Lord is good and gives thanks to him in a mess. And the non-Christian can never get there. Taste and see. The Lord is good. It's application number one, our second and last. Remember, whenever your heart is broken, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's near. He's been right there all along. He delights to draw near to people whose hopes have been crushed. Jesus became a brokenhearted person. He lived it. He knows. He knows from first-hand experience that no one can take from him. He knows. He cares. He sees. He hears. He came to meet us where we are and pull us out of it all. He died to remove us from our misery, our sin, our complaining, our complaining heart. And he rose again to bring us a new heart and a new song and praise on our lips forever and to be near him face to face one day and forever. Let's pray. Father, help us